are going to talk this evening about works. So prepare to feel guilty. Prepare to think of all the things you should have done before you got here this evening. Then we're going to end with the gospel. Let's open with prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we open scripture again, we do pray your blessing upon us that you will guide our thoughts and meditations to be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to read a brief passage to you and have you reflect upon its covenantal character. This is from Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. This is sung by the 24 elders, and indeed all of creation sings this to God. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. Notice the covenantal connection of that. To, to claim God as our Lord our God is to claim him as our covenant Lord, our covenant God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Creation is itself a covenantal act by God. One thing we're going to see tonight is that God created the creation to be in covenant with him, and he is in covenant with us as our creator. It was a fixed commitment of God to sustain his creation. He created us to be in fellowship with him. Creation is not something secondary to create, excuse me, covenant is not something secondary to creation. It is of the stuff and substance of it because God is a covenantal kind of God. Covenant is part of what God, is an expression of God's own self. We saw earlier this morning that God took counsel with himself. There's a covenant within the three persons of the Trinity. not sure if I said that right. I mean, within the Trinity, among the three persons of the Trinity, there is this covenant existing from forever. So when he created us to be in fellowship with him, being in fellowship is what God is, you see, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in intimate unity and fellowship, creating us, he's bringing us into that same kind of Fellowship, which is a covenant fellowship, specifically a fellowship of commitment. It's not a passing emotional thing only. Uh, emotions are uh, certainly part of any good relationship. I'm not denying that at all. But like love, love is not just an emotion. It is a fixed commitment to someone. It is a determination for their good. And you see, that is what covenant is all about as well. Well, this, this evening we're going to look at how creation is covenantal. Now, what I have to say is really uh, pretty well embodied in our confessional documents. I'll just be really elucidating that and not adding much at all. It is a, a remarkable thing that we have, again, a confession which embodies covenant theology. This is how, as Reformed people, we confess our faith as a covenantal kind of faith. And these uh, elements where the word covenant appears in our confession 
is really just because the whole thing is covenantal. And it comes up on particular topics where you find the word covenant used, for example, in the covenant of works with Adam. But it really is, as I've mentioned all along, like scripture itself, it's really thoroughly infused with the notion of covenant and making all those same kinds of connections. Now, interesting background to the Westminster Confession is to look at the Irish Articles, which were composed in 1615. The Westminster Confession composed around 1645 through 50. There is a, a, a phase there. I'm not sure of the exact dates. But the Irish Articles were 1615 by uh, Archbishop Usher, the uh, Archbishop of Ireland. And here's what it says about creation. These are the Irish Articles, 1615. Man, being at the beginning, created according to the image of God, which consisted especially in the, in the wisdom of his mind and the true holiness of his free will, had the covenant of the law engrafted in his heart, whereby God did promise unto him everlasting life upon condition that he performed entire and perfect obedience unto his commandments according to that measure of strength whereby he was endued in his creation and threatened death unto him if he did not perform the same. Now this is a statement that is really a pretty well-developed statement of covenant theology, that we were created in covenant with God. Covenant is not secondary to creation, but God created us and had the covenant of law engrafted in Adam's heart from the beginning. This is really what Paul says in Romans 2.15, isn't it? That the Gentile will be judged by the law written on his heart. Well, where is the law written in your heart? It's in creation. And I think you have actually want to connect that with being in the image of God. He created us to be in his image, and that means having this covenant stamp as well. But the obligations of God imposed on us as, as his creatures to give him the due glory and honor, as we saw in the Revelation 4.11. We, we glorify you, our God, because you created us. We owe you that, you see. So the Irish articles really pick up that, that uh, feature of being created in covenant with God. You'll also notice similarity of language between the Irish articles and some of these places talking about the covenant of life, the promise of life there, and the condition of perfect and entire obedience. You could also add personal obedience. Um, it's, it's familiar to us because this document was actually instrumental in shaping the Westminster Standards. This was used by the Westminster Assembly as a, really a starting point for formulating the Westminster Standards. So it's a pretty important document for that reason. We have in our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, 7.2. As you know, chapter 7 is really about the covenant of works with Adam. But it says, The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. I've been stressing that last point. But notice how much is packed into these little short places, and you really want to unpack them to see the full orb of covenant theology. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity. 
there you see that Adam was this covenant didn't impact Adam alone but his posterity as well this is why it's vital to maintain the historical character of Adam theologically besides the fact that the Bible teaches that but if you don't have a historical Adam you don't have the reality of this covenant you see and you can't explain sin sin is not a natural phenomenon it was not created as an original creation structure sin and death I should say you can't explain death so you, you can see here that uh, w- you know we maintain the historical character of a real uh, Adam because he is the one who actually transgressed as, a, as the scripture tells us very plainly and that is why we as his posterity also suffer death where does the scripture go? In Adam, all die, but in Christ, all will be made alive. So, our confession is, has talked about this covenant of works. So, let us briefly talk about its character. First of all, the, the term covenant of works might be slightly misleading at times. It's not that some covenants demand works and others demand something else. Really, all of, all of the covenants that God imposes on us demand works of some sort. The covenant of grace has a demand for works. And I'll explain beginning tomorrow, the demand in the covenant of grace is on another on our behalf. That's the difference. You see, the difference is between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is not that there's works required. Another way to express it, full covenant obedience and acknowledging the lordship of God and following his every way. Personal, perfect, and entire obedience. That's demanded of all covenants. But in the covenant of works, it's demanded of Adam, personally. Whereas any time after that, after the fall, the covenant of grace is always, that demand has been shifted to another, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the one who has fulfilled the term and the demand of that personal, perfect, and entire obedience on our behalf, and that's what makes it a covenant of grace. So I could, I could almost say, we could almost re-term this covenant of works. I'm not going to do it. I certainly don't want to introduce new terms on this, but you could almost think of it as the covenant with Adam is a covenant of personal responsibility. You could think of it in that term. Whereas the covenant of grace we could call a covenant of substitution. Somebody else substitutes to obey for us. And then our obedience is still required as testimony to our living faith, but it is not the grounds of that acceptance into that covenant relationship. Well, we're getting into the covenant of grace beginning tomorrow, and we'll, we'll reiterate that. But it is really, once you understand that, so much of the scripture opens up. Then you start understanding how it is that in the Old Testament that the saints of old could actually experience grace. It's because these things were being taught to them as to children. They were taught through the sacrifices as uh, here, you know, in baby steps. Here when you see this lamb uh, slain for you. Here when you see the, uh, the goat being sent out uh, with on the Day of Atonement, being sent out into the wilderness to die for the sins of the whole nation. You start seeing the, uh, 
um, baby steps that God is putting them through to teach them the idea of substitution and that he accepts them and another must die on their behalf. Now, the covenant of works, though, with Adam is established by God at creation, but he has entered into a particular phase of that covenant when he announces to Adam a special term, a special uh, obligation upon Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and threatens him with a curse. We could call this a covenant curse. That in the day that he eats of that tree, he will die. And not only him, but all of his posterity in him will die as well and be born into death. And you see, this uh, special obligation is when God announced that to him. Now, what's interesting is in the history of the church, uh, people have picked up on that. We will find that the passage in Romans 5 is one of the main really clear interpretations of that. But interpreters have picked up on that. Even as early as Augustine, writing around 400 AD, when he writes this, in connection, he's dealing with the question of why would children die for breaking the covenant by not accepting circumcision, not being circumcised under the Abrahamic covenant. He's dealing with why would children uh, be punished on that behalf. And here's his answer. Now, this is in no way the fault of the infant whose soul is said to be doomed to perish, and it is not the infant himself who has broken the covenant of God. It is his elders who have not taken care to circumcise him. That is, unless it is because even infants have broken the covenant, not in consequence of any particular act of their own, but in consequence of the origin which is common to all mankind, since all have broken God's covenant in that one man in whom all sinned. Now it is true that many covenants are called God's covenants apart from the two principal ones, the old and the new, which anyone may get to know by reading them. But the first covenant made with the first man is certainly this, on the day you eat, you will surely die. That's covenant theology right there in Augustine. This is from the City of God. I gave you the reference in your handbook. But that's, to be, that's uh, as I said before, covenant theology really begins very early on in bits and pieces. It's just put together later on, uh, particularly in the first generation after the, the reformers where they start consciously constructing covenant theology. This is why the books on Olivianus are, I think, very, very helpful. By that way, the, the little book on the firm foundation is a very edifying treatment on the Heidelberg Catechism, but he shows his thoroughly covenant orientation in that little book. So it's a worthwhile devotional piece as well as informative on covenant theology. So you have, very early in the history of interpretation of the scripture, people recognizing that there's a covenant with Adam, but when is this covenant made? I mean, it's not called a covenant. Well, that shouldn't bother us by this point, because we've seen that in scripture, things that are set up are later on interpreted as covenant, but not necessarily when they were set up. So what would make it a covenant? Augustine rightly points to this to the fact that there's a demand placed on Adam. In the day you eat of this, you will surely die. There's a demand, don't eat from that tree, 
So there is a commandment. It, it is a covenant of personal obligation. He must personally not eat from that tree. And secondly, there's a curse attached to it and a threat. But thirdly, and this is implied and we need to bring this out, there's also a blessing promised for obedience. And the blessing is promised through the pledges, through the signs, particularly the tree of life and the Sabbath institution. So we're going to look at those, those things. But notice the obligation. Adam was obligated to fulfill these terms. Don't eat from that tree. Now, if you think about that, it's, it's a, a bit odd at first, isn't it? Maybe it's not odd at first, but it should be odd at second. Why? How did God, how was, how did God create things? What was God's uh, interpretation of all creation? When he set it up, did he say, it's all very good, except for this tree. I, I made a big boo-boo. You know. Sorry, don't eat from that tree. It's poisonous. Is that the way it was? No. You see, it's not that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a big boo-boo, is it? It's still very good. So it, it sort of seems odd. Why does he forbid Adam from eating of that tree is a good question, isn't it? If it's very good, he should eat of it. That's what you do with fruit from trees. Well, it appears, it appears that God chose a commandment. He chose a tree and he made a commandment really to precipitate a probation, to precipitate that Adam would be confronted with temptation and have the opportunity to fail this test that he was placed in. And if that's true, Adam fulfilled, you know, what, what, as we see, of course, Adam did fail the test. And in him, all die in that one transgression. So God set up a commandment and he said, here is a commandment so that if you cross this line, that is a transgression of a specific, explicit, covenantal obligation I place on you. You must obey me. And I threaten this curse on you if you disobey. And Adam failed that test, as we all know. But you see, it was set up with that whole structure in mind. You know, when my... I shouldn't tell her, but when my one of my children, a female one, but I have two, and it happens to be the one with blondish hair, so, with a little baby. <laughs> uh, we had a television in our room at the time, in our living room, and it was at baby level. And I decided that we were going to have a little way of teaching the little baby discipline. So I decided, baby doesn't touch television. Touch television, you will die. <laughs> In the day you touch of this television, you will die. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was uncanny how a little baby looked at me, one of the little girl babies, looked at me and touched the television just like this. <laughs> so what are you going to do? <laughs> 
she found that the covenant curse was applicable in our family. <laughs> Isn't that the way kids are? Uh, and I just, you know, and then it was a point of honor, you know. <laughs> Who's going to win this struggle? Well, I won that one. Uh, but she turned out to be a, a wonderful kid. Well, the, uh, see, the thing is, this is what it's like. It was God setting up an opportunity for transgression. You see, transgression, in, particularly in Paul's language, isn't just sin in general, but it's crossing over the line on a specific covenant uh, commandment. There's a specific commandment with a curse attached, and that's what transgression is. You transgress this commandment so that it's very clear where sin can be a more broad-reaching principle of death working in us in Paul's language. So Adam was obligated already to obey God in everything entirely and perfectly and personally, and yet God added this probationary aspect of the covenant. Now this probationary aspect was uh, particularly seen in creation itself. Creation was already covenantal. He should have already understood that he had an obligation to God as his creator. But also we know that God created all things to be in covenant with him and he himself on his side was obligated to us. And this is something that's brought out that, that really shows that creation itself is a covenantal phenomenon. I'd like to pause in our discussion of the Adamic covenant in particular and just show you that the whole Adamic arrangement is covenantal and creation itself. Look with me, please, at Jeremiah 33. Here we're dealing really with new covenant promises throughout this section in Jeremiah. But 3320 through 25. Now, the, word, the Lord is giving assurances to his people. And he's doing it in a way that he's alluding back to previous covenants. And he's assuring them of the fulfillment of his Davidic covenant. So, Jeremiah 33, well, beginning with verse 19. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day in my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. Let's pause there. Now, remember again that, that in the original issuing of that covenant with David, it's not called a covenant, but here, as well as in Psalm 89 is interpreted as a covenant as well as God's arrangement with the Levites. But this phrase, my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, is at first a little perplexing, isn't it? When did he make this kind of covenant? Part of it is explained by retranslating here. If you can break my covenant of day and you can break my covenant of night, because that's how he says it. It's difficult to interpret until you understand what he's saying and really understand how to define covenant, I think. If you define covenant as this fixed order, this disposition that God arranges and guarantees, 
then you can understand that when he set up day and night, he did it as a fixed order. But it's fixed not because of natural principles. When we study nature, we're simply studying the way God ordinarily works. Because he is in control of every atom that spins. All the quarks, all the strange little beasties that you can't see, those are all under God's control. You see, a hair falls from your head at God's command only. Jesus says this very plainly as if, oh, that's obvious. No hair falls from your head. No bird falls from the sky apart from your heavenly Father. Not a one. You see, we live and move and have our being in God. He is all around us, here, present, sustaining us. And you see, in a sense, this is a covenantal reality. He is committed to, to our existence. If he weren't, we wouldn't exist. The deists have it really wrong, don't they? The deism says God made the world like a clock and went away and sort of forgot about us. He may visit us from time to time, but he's not particularly interested. And if that were true, friends, we wouldn't exist. Once God forgot about us for a moment, we would no longer be. This is how extensive our Calvinism is. And this is the biblical portrait of all of existence, to live in God. And I think it's a covenantal portrait because God is committed to his creation. He has fixed this creation and has determined that he will sustain it. And when I say covenantal in this sense, he is bound to it. He has uh, compacted with himself, I will sustain creation and I will bring about my good plan for creation. So here you see he's saying that. He's saying, I have committed that day and night will exist from the beginning of creation to the very end. I'm committed to that. Now, now you change it. Go ahead. You stop me from bringing day and night about tomorrow. Okay, I'd like a young man, particularly a a strong young man, would you please stop the sun from rising tomorrow? Come on. Strong young man, raise your hand. Need a volunteer. You can't do it, can you? You can't do it because God is committed to doing it. And once God says, I'm going to do it, no one can stop his hand from doing what he plans. So you see, he, he describes that as a covenant. And that's what I mean by saying creation is covenantal. God is committed to sustaining his creation. And that puts an obligation on us as well as his creatures to enter into that fellowship that he has designed for us and to be committed to him as well. And Adam should have known that. You see, the covenant with Adam extended to all of his life. He should have glorified God in all of life and enjoyed him forever in all of life. That God set up this special probationary aspect of the covenant, yet undergirding creation itself is this whole covenantal phenomenon. Now you do have some people that object to the idea that the Adamic arrangement is a covenant. We do have that phrase in Hosea 6-7, 
Uh, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. This is a pretty well-known passage where it seems like he says, like Adam transgressed the covenant, so the Israelites have. This is Hosea 6, verse 7. I won't get into that. In my opinion, I think that's how it should be interpreted. It's debated. Even your translations will vary on that. But there's a nice essay by B.B. Warfield in his shorter writings where he maintains that it should be rendered like Adam and refer to an Adamic covenant. And this really is, this is one of those places where perhaps we do have the word covenant in the Bible interpreting the Adamic phenomenon. And I, I think it is, but it's debated, so I won't get into the details of it. But I would encourage you to read the Warfield essay on that. Hosea 6, 7, Adam or man. There's another passage I'd like you to turn with me to, Isaiah 24, beginning with verse 1, and we'll go through verse 5. Isaiah 24. Here's an interesting passage to reflect on, possibly referring to the Adamic situation as covenantal. And what I mean by that is, expressly using the word covenant to describe what's happening in creation. In Isaiah 24, we read this, verse 1, Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken his word. The earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers, the exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left, etc., etc. Now, this is a passage which talks about worldwide cataclysmic judgment. This is the judgment. This is called the little apocalypse section of Isaiah, chapters 24 to 27, I believe, because it's talking about, really, judgment upon the end of the whole world. Uh, Later on, we read about the judgment on Satan in this passage. The earth is split, shaken violently. Hebrews picks that up about the shaking of the earth and talks about that at the, at the second coming. Here, however, you have this, this phrase that the peoples of the earth, the inhabitants of the world, have violated laws, statutes, and broke the everlasting covenant. Now, what covenant is that? What covenant is everlasting that all the peoples of the earth have broken? And if you mean everlasting, it means the one that is uh, perpetually in force, you see, never abrogated, always in force, and that is the Adamic covenant, it seems to me. To talk about the, the fact that God's demands upon his creatures constitutes a covenant. And this is an everlasting covenant by which the peoples of the earth will be judged. And again, if you are not in the covenant of grace, you are in the covenant of works. God does hold all of his rational creatures accountable to that covenant. And we all in Adam die and are held accountable to God. 
unless we escape that wrath of God in Christ Jesus and enter into the covenant of grace in all of its fullness. Well, that clearly is taught in our Romans passage. Now, I've asked, I've done that, uh, used that section as a devotional, but I'd like to look just at a few of those verses with you in Romans 5 now. Do you have any questions first before we get going here? Okay. In Romans 5, this of course is, is uh, one of those passages that, that Reformed people have uh, used very fully, and, and rightly so, a passage that teaches very clearly that Adam was a public person. We have that elsewhere, and you know all of our experience teaches this, but here Paul teaches on it. But let me make a few observations first. In this passage, Romans 5, 12 to the end of the chapter, verse 21, in this passage, Paul teaches clearly about Adam's role in bringing condemnation to all people. Everyone in Adam dies. And yet, this isn't really his main interest, so I just want to point this out. His real interest is in exalting grace in Jesus Christ. This is, it's hard to get Paul off that track, and I don't mind. It's okay for Paul to love the gospel and to glory in it. But I just wanted you to see that he isn't really doing a real full teaching on Adam. He's bringing Adam in so that we could understand Christ as second Adam. That's really his motive. So he may leave some questions unanswered about Adam because he's really focusing on Christ. So that's, that's uh, one point. But secondly, another point is in verse 2, um, excuse me, verse 12, Paul sets up this analogy, like Adam, so also, but unfortunately, he gets a little carried away and doesn't tell us the so also part. So he sets up an analogy like this, and then he forgets to give us the comparison, uh, the conclusion of the comparison. And on this, I'm just, for the ministries who've um, been through this, I'm just following John Murray on, uh, in his little book, The Imputation of Adam's Sin. Uh, really, on the whole passage, I think he's right in, in almost all detail. So, in the, But in verse 12, he sets up that analogy and doesn't complete it. So let me just read this real quickly, the first few verses, to verse 14. For this reason, just as through one man, sin entered into the whole world, and through this sin came death. And in this way, death disseminated to all men, because all sinned. Now notice he hasn't, he hasn't completed the comparison. Now verse 13. For until law, sin was in the world, but sin is not accounted where there is no law. But death reigned from Adam until Moses, even though over those who had not committed sin in the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one to come. Now, just a few quick observations. Notice that death still reigned over those who hadn't sinned in the way Adam did. What, how can they 
die then if they haven't committed this transgression of the covenant stipulation with a curse attached. In the day you eat of the tree of this fruit, the fruit of this tree, you will die. How is it that they die? Because in Adam, death came into the world. When he did it, we did it. When he ate of that tree, we did. Secondly, notice it was Adam. He, said, he uses his name explicitly. Adam, not Eve. Even though she ate first. Why? Adam was the federal representation. Adam was the federal head. Federal just is another word for covenant, isn't it? The covenant head. He is the one who represented us. He was the public person that God created first and, and gave the command to him. By the way, in the Genesis account, he gives the command to Adam. Eve hadn't been created yet. So notice also as verse 14 goes, Adam was set up as a type, a pattern of the one to come, the second Adam. And that's where Paul's interest really lies, is in the second Adam. Now, I know our Arminian friends think that verse 12 says that it, that it says that Adam, like Adam sinned, so also we sinned, therefore we're judged. That's what our, how our Arminian friends interpret verse 12. Just as Adam sinned and death came into the world, so also we sin and death comes to us because we all sinned. That's how they interpret verse 12. But I've yet to find in those people that, that treat this passage, I've yet to find them go on to verse 18. Because it's verses 18 and 19 where Paul resumes his point. You see, he's gotten off track a little bit. In verses 15 through 17, he talks about how Christ and Adam are not comparable. And he goes off into how you can't compare Adam and Christ, primarily because grace is so much more wonderful and undeserved. But in verse 18, I believe he resumes what he started out in verse 12. And so let's read verse 18. So then, back to the point, Paul says, just as through the one who transgressed, I'm paraphrasing, it resulted in to all men, to all people, leading to condemnation. So also, through that one person who acted righteously, that one act of righteousness, it resulted to all men leading to justification of life. Now that comparison is completed, and it's very clear, isn't it? Just as Adam, in his actions, resulted in condemnation to all, so also Christ's one action of righteousness resulted in justification to all, and we have to insert, who are his. You see, just as Adam was a public person and his actions impacted us, so also Christ's action impacted us very directly, except in an opposite way, in grace and in justification of life. For as through the, the disobedience of the one man, the many were constituted sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many will be constituted righteous. So here you see, this, this is where our Armenian friends really don't go far enough. Verse 18 and 19 really complete what Paul is getting at. 
that the actions of Adam impacted us directly and are the foundation of us being constituted sinners and under condemnation from God. We and Adam have broken that covenant and that covenant curse falls on us because of Adam's transgression. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? Thank God. And neither did God. He didn't stop there either because he also set up Christ, the one to come, Paul says in verse 14, set up Adam as a pattern of the one to come, a type of the one to come. Christ came as second Adam, a term found in 1 Corinthians 15 of Christ, as, as the last man, the second Adam. He came in order to fulfill God's redemptive program and that his actions would be given to us. He is our substitute. So that when he acted righteously, we act righteously. You see, it's no longer our righteousness that constitutes us righteous before God's judgment seat, but it's Christ's righteousness given to us. And of course, this is the active obedience of Christ. But we see in here the essential character of the Adamic covenant as a federal a covenant representative. His actions became our actions. But also the covenant of grace has that same character. And thank the Lord, so that Christ's actions become ours as well. Well, the Adamic covenant has that federal representative character. But it also had other elements of interest to us. It had commandments really beyond uh, the particular probationary command. It had a commandment for a work to fill the earth and multiply, a marriage. God defined marriage there, as well as a promise held out, particularly in the tree of life and in the, in the Sabbath command. And you see, the Sabbath was set up for man, Jesus says in Mark 2.27. You know, that passage is, is uh, really quite important for us in our reflection on covenant. Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man, therefore the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. And it doesn't, you know, the therefore doesn't quite connect at first. The Sabbath was made for man, therefore the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Oh, why? Because he's the man. <laughs> he is the second Adam. You see, that's what makes that work. He is the Lord over the Sabbath as Son of Man, but he's also the one for whom it was made so that he would bring us into that rest that the Sabbath originally points to. There is yet a Sabbath resting, remaining for the people of God, the one that Christ entered into, and we in him as he leads us to that final rest in our heavenly dwelling. But you see, Adam heard echoes of this when he read about and was told about the Sabbath command. God sanctified the day. He set it apart as a special day. And it really held forth a promise of rest to Adam. A rest of perfect uh, joy and fulfillment. And it, it received a blessing from God and by resting in it and fulfilling the probation, Adam would have received that full beatitude and blessing. 
And then there was the tree of life. And as you know, after Adam fell, both Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden so that they would not have access to the tree of life evermore. So that covenant really is expressed by the fact that beforehand, when Adam was righteous and obeyed God perfectly, he had free access to the tree of life. But after the fall, that curse is symbolized by forbidding him from access anymore to the tree of life. And of course, we find the tree of life appearing later through the second Adam, giving free access to a tree of life that dwells in the in Revelation, uh, the last chapter. Well, it's difficult to talk about Adam and the covenant of works without jumping into the covenant of grace, which we're going to do tomorrow. But that's a sketch of, of uh, what I have for you this evening. Do you have any questions? I do, I do have a concluding word, but I'd like to pause there and ask for questions. The concluding word will be brief. I know it's late in the evening. Yes, sir. Yeah, the question is, when Adam, by being created and the promise held forth of life confirmed to him if he passed the probation, isn't that some form of grace? This has been well debated, as you know, in our circles. And I, I think the better term is, it is an act of God's goodness. I think if you think, if you distinguish God's goodness from his grace, you'll understand Paul better. And that's the reason I do think it's not helpful to use the term grace in that context. Because Paul uses the word grace in these same discussions when he discusses the character of works and personal obedience. He distinguishes grace from the other form. He distinguishes grace and says there's no grace in that. Because grace for him is specifically God's favor despite demerit. It's often, it's often interpreted as unmerited favor, but I don't think that's strong enough. It's not just unmerited favor as if we're neutral. We don't merit it, but we're not such bad guys after all. It's, it's no, we're, we're guilty criminals. It's not just that we don't merit it. We demand... we to deserve entirely the opposite. We deserve condemnation. Yet God's grace superabounded in that he took condemned criminals out of prison and made them his sons. That's grace for Paul. And to, and to use the term grace to talk about the original Adamic situation before the fall is problematic. It is confusing and it's not helpful in my opinion. But what you're actually asking about, I think, is, is, or discussing at that point is, does man deserve to be created? Well, no. But he's not a condemned criminal at that stage. He's righteous. So it's not that God overcame his demerit and created Adam and then dwelt with him in fellowship. No, I mean, that's not grace. But it is his goodness. He didn't have to do that. It was an act of his free will God's free will to create us 
and enter into fellowship with us. But he's entering into fellowship with perfectly righteous beings, Adam and Eve, who don't deserve condemnation. But you're right, he's offered things which just lavish his goodness and and kindness upon us. Certainly, absolutely. So I I think using the term grace carefully is, is, uh, I think it's very important. It has uh, created some confusion in our our circles and very serious confusion that that has led to uh, problems. So I think it's best to avoid that term and just use the term God's goodness and kindness he didn't have to create us any other questions John I'm surprised you remember it Sorry. <laughs> no. Um, there was a good brother there who was dispensational. Um, and he graduated dispensational, but that's not my point. My point is that we had many discussions, he and I, and one of the things he said was that his dispensational sort of fathers in the faith said that if you accept the Reformed interpretation of uh, Romans 5, that is the whole idea of federal headship, that's yeah. what I'm to you, yeah. that you would no longer be a dispensational. I don't hmm. see the connection. I don't know why. And, and perhaps there is something or, or that, that I didn't see that you would know. Yeah, the question is if dispensationalists may think that, some dispensationalists think that if you accept the idea of federal headship, you can't be a dispensationalist. Why would that be? I don't know, personally. My exposure to dispensationalism was very brief and not and I haven't really read much in their literature to tell you the truth I have a book on Darby on my shelf does that count for anything I haven't looked at it but I checked out a book on Darby and I intend to read it someday it's a good question and if I knew their system better one of the problems with dispensationalism I find is it's not really a system it's a collection of teachings but it doesn't really hang together as a whole system so that you take out one element, the whole thing falls apart. Well, you know, they just create another dispensational era to plug in the gap, you know, I guess. Does anybody else know that can inform us? Why would adopting federal headship undermine dispensationalism? The, the real importance of federal headship, as you can see from this passage, is not really Adam, although, I mean, that's, we've got to maintain that as well. But the real importance of federal headship, covenant headship, is because of the gospel and the fact that Jesus is our federal head. When he fulfills all the demands of his Father for perfect, personal, entire, perpetual obedience, he does it for us so that we become the righteousness of God in him. He became a curse for us so that we might become God's own righteousness. It might be given to us. That's how it's expressed in the scripture. So that all that he is, we become. And isn't that, and Jesus himself 
talks about that in the high priestly prayer. He talks about that, that they may have fellowship with us as we do. I mean, this wonderful, intimate fellowship. And it's through his work he brings us into this wonderful fellowship with God, and this covenant fellowship, this commitment. So I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know. Well, let me close with one point. It's easy to talk about the covenant of works and creation structures being covenantal and all this stuff. And it's very important stuff to understand. It's foundational principles for understanding the gospel. And it really is important. But the payoff is also important. And the payoff for us personally is, you see, God created us covenantally. And what that means is he was committed to us from the beginning. It wasn't something that he developed. And as I said, we exist only because he remains committed to us. But you see, the real promise to Adam was life. But it wasn't life like you and I know because we live our life in a fallen condition and we still suffer the effects of that. We suffer estrangements in our own relationships and we suffer some estrangement from God at times because of our sin and feeling remote from him. But the whole creation project of God was that we might have intimate, perfect, wonderful fellowship with him. And one thing you get in the early covenant theologians that I've been reading is this profound sense of just how being in relation with God is our supreme good. How really to know God is eternal life. John 17 also. To know him and enter into him is our best thing. It is our supreme good to enter into this fellowship with God that he holds out to us now in the gospel and offers us freely through Christ. So that this fellowship with God will always satisfy us through eternity. There are times I have to admit now when it's hard for me to understand that. Won't we get a little bored in heaven, floating around on clouds, plucking harps? I can't play a harp. You know, how much how, are they going to give me time to learn before we start singing? You know. Well, the answer is, we're going to be so enraptured by just seeing God that the harps will sort of be forgotten for a while. Just knowing God. And knowing his profound love. You know, your children you know what it feels like to have your mom and dad not to be unhappy with you. You know, you've done something wrong in there. I remember very clearly the real worst punishment for me was not being spanked, really. It was knowing my parents were angry with me and being out of fellowship with them. But being in fellowship with God is so much better. And God has created us for that. And he has determined to have this restored. And he has worked it out for us in the covenants. So in the covenant of grace, that's the end, is that he will be our God and we will be our, his people and he will live among us. And that's what was broken with Adam. That's what was represented when Adam was expelled from the garden. And that was what the second Adam um, restored 
when he went to his garden, the garden before, on the night before he was crucified. And that second Adam brought us back into that fellowship. And brothers and sisters, that's what we look forward to. And all this covenant uh, talk is, is confirming that. All of what we deal with with the covenants is confirming that God is moving us to that intimate fellowship. And that that commitment from his side is really what we're uh, focusing on when we talk about covenants. So let's end with prayer this evening. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have told us very plainly that if we can stop the sun from rising, then we can turn back your grace. If we admit, O Lord, the depths of our sin, there are some of us who would attempt that, particularly in our fallen state, before we knew you. But now, O Lord, we delight in these truths. We love you, Lord, and we, we sure rely upon you. Please bless us this evening as we meditate upon these truths. Bless us with your fellowship and with your love and grace, for we need you. Forgive us of our sins. Grant that we may grow in ever greater appreciation of you and glorify you with our whole heart all the days of our lives. For the glory of Jesus Christ, our dear Lord. Amen.